Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Ferdina Azban, here with my friend, Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Sukkah, daf, page 18. So the Gemara here has an interesting discussion on Ahmed Aleph that, for me at least, as somewhat of an obvious question that I don't think we ever saw before about the issue of Lavud, right? The idea that if you have less than three tfachim between two solid materials, right? Like between two walls or two beams or, you know, an area that was breached, they sort of combine to be one whole unit. And this is how the discussion begins. So let's say you have a large sukkah. Now, one thing that's interesting here is most commentators explain what do they mean by a large sukkah? Any sukkah that's larger than the minimum size of a sukkah, right? Which the minimum size of the sukkah is Seven by second, seven by second tfachim. So that's not really a very large sukkah. But by sukkah gedola, we mean anything that's above the minimum here. So let's say you have a space in the roofing that is more than three, that is three tfachim, right? You have a three tfachim break in the roofing. Right? So let's say he tries to make that breach of three tfachim smaller by putting branches, right? which are fit for roofing, or maybe he did it with the metal skewers, right, which we talked about before, which you can't really use for roofing. Still, umiuto, he made it smaller. In other words, now there isn't really enough space, right, for, for uh, uh, there isn't really enough space anymore, right? In other words, the sukkah sort has been made smaller, and therefore what? The sukkah basically is sort of made unfit in a way, right, because you sort of made uh, uh right you, he made it uh higher mute right he made he made the sukkah smaller but when we're talking about a small sukkah right okay but let's say with a small sukkah if you diminish the space with branches right that is actually making it smaller but if you did it with these metal skewers it's not making it smaller right and the sukkah now is also still unfit. So in other words, if you have these three tzvachim of these metal skewers, okay, it's not enough to sort of make the sukkah unfit, right? This is just try to file this here, right? But you diminish the fit area of the sukkah to the point where the sukkah no longer is a fit sukkah. So it, 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 it's a little bit of an interesting uh, concept here. So in other words, you the right amount of space, but you end up making the sukkah smaller by adding another material, and they go through the case of a large sukkah or a small sukkah, and because of that, you actually end up decreasing the space of the sukkah itself, and then therefore, the sukkah itself is no longer fit. And this is the question I want to talk about. The Gemara says that this applies only to a space that is along the side of the sukkah, right, where essentially the principle of lavud applies. But let's say we're talking about the middle, okay? Let's say, in other words, this three tfachim, okay, this empty space was in the middle of the schach itself, right? Right? So, in other words, here's the issue. If you had, if it's on the side, these three tzvachim, right? And you, you know, you can sometimes rely on the principle of levu, that yes, 
there might be a gap of less than three tzvachim. And so it's going to combine with the wall. And basically, you don't really have a gap in your sukkah. But let's say this three tzvachim, this is the case I'm really interested in, is in the middle of the schach itself. And so the question is, does Lavud apply in the center of something? And so Ravach and Ravina have a disagreement about this. One says you do follow the principle of Lavud in the center of the sukkah. And one says you don't follow the principle of Lavud. So that even if you diminish the space, right, to less than three tzvachim, right, and then you could say Lavud kicks in, right? Here, they would be, right, which is basically what you're doing with the first example that Abai said, right? You basically, even if, you know, depending on if it's a big sukkah or a little sukkah, again, that's not the case that I'm interested in, but you have the principle of Lavud kick in. Here, the question is, if you have the three tzvachim in the middle, you diminish the space by putting, adding some material, whether it's branches, which is really fit for schach, whether it's the metal skewers, which is not fit, fit for schach, but the idea is, is that you lessen the three tfachim, you lessen it to less than three tfachim, Lavud should kick in. But here the question is, yeah, but it's in the center of everything. So do we hold by the principle of Lavud? And one Amor is going to say, no, there's no Lavud when something's in the middle of something, has to be more like on the side. And one Amor says, yes, there is the principle of Lavud. And so I thought this was such a great question, right? That in other words, yes, we have this concept of Lavud, but here the question is asking, does Lavud only apply when the breach is in a certain part, right? Where the break is in a certain area of the structure that we're dealing with. But when the break is sort of like fundamentally in the center of the structure, could you really, does it really combine? Because there's like a break in the center of the structure itself. So now the Gemara is going to explain this a little more. Mantama, right? What's the reason? For the one who says that you can have Lavud in the center of the sukkah. So they're going to quote a brisa here, Ditanya. And here it's interesting. Here we're going to have a brisa, right? That is quoted from Eruvin. And so I think the reason why this question didn't pop up so much in Eruvin, if I'm recalling correctly, is Eruvin is different, right? And what we construct with a Reuven is more with like beams and not so much with roofing. And so that's why this, this really comes up with sukkah. But again, we're going to draw a parallel with a Reuven. So what's the case here? So let's say you have the cross beam, right? Of these, of two alleyways, right? That you want to merge together. And one projects from the wall of one alleyway, but it doesn't actually touch the wall of the opposite alleyway, right? Or let's say you have the two alleyways. Each one has a beam sticking out from it, but there's a gap in the middle. The two beams never actually, uh, right? They not know God, right? But they never actually touch from each other, right? So essentially, that's going to look like a break in the center, right? If it's less than three tzvachim, right, you don't need to bring another beam because essentially the principle of Lavud kicks in, right? But if it's three tzvachim or greater, you need to bring another beam. So this brisa would seem to be a proof, right, that we do hold by Lavud in the center. Now, the Gemara brings up something that, Anne, you and I talked about a little bit before. Right. But the Gemara says, OK, this other sage, why will he say you can't bring from this case of a Reuven? 
Why? Because the beams are different because they're rabbinic law. In other words, we're going to allow Levud in the center when it comes to Eruvin, because the whole kind of the whole concept of Eruvin is all rabbinic law. Whereas when we're talking about a fit sukkah, right? A fit sukkah is deraisa, right? Whether or not your sukkah is kosher is a deraisa issue. And therefore, we're not going to allow this concept of Levud, you know, uh, in this deraisa situation. But for a derabanan like Eruvin, it's totally okay. Okay, so now they want to explain why does the one who says Levu doesn't apply in the center? What's his proof for that? My time, demand Amar Ein Levu Ba'amsa. And so now they're going to quote a Mishnah. It's not. Aruba Shababai, Uba Poteach Tefach Tuman Babai Kula Tame. So this is a great question. Let's say you have a house where in the center of the house, there's an opening of a Tefach in the room. So remember, if you have a house with a full roof on top of it and something is tame in the house, everything else in that house becomes tame, basically. Here we're talking about two masamids, right? Something that became tame because of a corpse. So everything in the house becomes tame. But now let's say you have an opening of one tefach basically in the middle of the, uh, of, of the house. And there's something that could impart tuma that's actually in the house itself, right? Everything still becomes tummy because you just have this tiny um, opening. But if you have something that's right underneath that one tefach in the roof, that actually is going to remain tahor. But let's say the tuma thing is right underneath the one tefach, everything in the house is tahor. And so essentially what this is saying is, is that that opening of the tefach which is less than three tefachim, obviously, functions as its own space. It doesn't really combine with everything else. And so that's going to be according to the Amora, who says there isn't levud for things that are in the center. Now, then they go on to say that if that skylight does not have an opening of a, of, of a full tefach, right? and there's ritual, there's something tummy in the house, everything opposite the skylight remains pure, right? But if the source of the impurity is right with the skylight, everything in the house remains pure, right? So again, they're just restating sort of this idea about the Levud. And then finally, the Gemara concludes by saying, So now the question is, according to the person who says, we do hold by Levud in the center, why don't we in this case? And so here we say, because the halachot of Tumantara are different because they're learned through tradition. In other words, everything that we know about Tumantara, right, how things become tame, are all halacha l'moshe mesinai, meaning they're a unique set of halachot, and, um, and we can't learn other halachot from it, right? That's kind of, that's basically what the Gemara is saying. But this Amora, who wants to hold by Lavud in the middle, will say, yeah, we have this brisa in, uh, you know, with, with Halachode Reuven that shows us there is Lavud in the middle. We're not going to even worry about this case of Tumantara because we can't learn parallels from Tumantara because the Halachode of Tumantara are straight Halacha Lamosha Mesinai. And therefore, we don't gain parallels from the other Halachode. So I thought this was a great discussion. First of all, I, think, I thought it asked <coughs> a great question that we had not asked before. And really an obvious question. It's one thing to say that when you have 
the three tefachim on the side of a building that you know the, the that that it extends to the wall or something like that. The roof extends to the wall, and it's considered okay in sukkah. But asking about the center really is a good question, right? What's the what's the boundary, the limit of saying lavud for that? But the other piece here that I really liked was sort of the acknowledgement. You know, one of the things the Gemara often does in its uh, discussion is sort of looking at parallel halachot and saying like, can we learn from this and apply it to our case or not? And here we have a discussion with a machlokas where each amora basically comes to say why we can, we can't learn from the parallel case that the amora brings to support his position, right? So the first one is the amora is going to say we don't use lavud in the center. He's going to say, because your proof to say we do lose lavud in the center from a Reuben, that's a Dirabanan. And this is dealing with a Dirabanan. And the one who's going to say, we don't hold Levud in the center, right? You know, the other mower is going to come and say, well, you brought your proof from Tumantara. And Tumantara is totally like all Halakha Moshe Misenai. We can't draw any parallels from it. So I really like the methodology here of sort of acknowledging what Halakha, when we're learning something out and trying to find parallels, right? Or where can we find overlapping halachot? Here the Gemara is really saying, when are you allowed to and when you're not? And so I think the methodology here is just as important to how these halachot are learned out. Why doesn't this parallel case work? Um, and I, I just thought this was a terrific, a terrific passage here. I think it also spotlights how many layers there are to discussions of things that we've already had, right? How much time do we talk about Lovin and Erevin? How much have we already spoken about it in Sukkah? And yet, here's more, here's new, here's, you know, a whole different side to it, which I think is, I think we'll take from this and extrapolate it in other places going forward as well. But it's particularly interesting that, you know, for, if you want to say, um, you know, there's always more to delve into in the Gemara. This is a fine example of how that exactly pans out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I watching them sort of, I think we've seen a lot of examples where we see what the parallels are. But here is an example where the Gemara, or at least this opinion of each individual Amara is saying, no, I'm not, I don't think you can draw a parallel to this case. And that's a little bit different than what we've seen in other Gemaras. Okay, I'm going to take us into a whole completely different arena. Um, first, I'm going to begin with Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli. You'll see why in a moment. And I'm still on Amad Aleph. Darash Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli. If you have a, a house and you've got this hole in it, right? And then you roof it over. And you put this roofing over it, the schach. He says it's kosher. Now we've seen other people saying otherwise, but that's what he says. So says, ask Rabbi Hudabari to explain himself, basically, because, you know, as I said, we know that other people say otherwise. So he answers, he says, well, this is what my father taught me. He says, if you're, if the breach is four amot long, then your sukkah is pasul. But if it's less than dalad amot, then your sukkah is kosher. Meaning that's his position. Now, you would think that this is room to get into a whole big discussion of exactly this view. Instead, the Gemara continues and says, and we jump to a whole new topic that is also addressed in the name of Rabbi Huda Barilai. Avroma Sharia. says, well, the Avroma, this is 
uh, kind of fish. He says it's permitted. It's permitted to eat it. Why? Why would that even be a question? Meaning we know from, and as I say, this is completely a, a whole new topic, talking about fish, what's kosher, what's not kosher. Why are we talking about it here? We're talking about it here because Rav Yehuda Barilai made this comment. Now, so what is this fish? Why is there even a question? We know from the Torah, from the written Torah, there's an explicit rule about fish having fins and scales. And all the fishes and fins and scales are kosher, you know, with some discussion of what does it mean to be a fin or what does it mean to be a scale, but that should be like a fairly simple assessment. Why is there a discussion of what is permitted or not permitted? So <clears throat> the issue here is that because this avroma is a very small fish, it can get caught in a net when you go fishing for it, right? Then you can get other small non-kosher fish caught together, and then it becomes really tricky to separate to, to distinguish between the two of them. So So these guys are talking again. It's the same questioner as the previous passage, passage which was about sukkah, right? He says, Rabbi Piresh, explain yourself. And he says again, This is what my father taught me. So what does that mean? In this place, in that place, it's usher, it's not usher. He says, my father said that when the Avroma is found in the place, thus and such, where you also have, where the point is, you also have non-kosher fish, then of course it's a sore because you've got a predominance. He doesn't even say you've got a predominance of non-kosher fish. There's a risk of getting the, your non-kosher fish involved. But if your Avroma is found, you're at a stream or whatever, in thus and such a place, you don't have non-kosher fish, so then that's fine. Muterit, and of course you can eat them. It's not about the fish. It's about the locale. It's about the likelihood that you have a risk of getting non-kosher fish mixed in. So then the Gemara goes on to pay attention to other small fish. This is what Abaye said. So Abaye says that small fish, specifically Tzachanta, which were in the Bav River, they are permitted. So the Gemara asks, "My Tama, why are those permitted?" So he says, "You might think the Gemara says you might think that the reason that we're going to permit eating the tzachanta in the Bav River, right? Why would these be acceptable? Because maybe we're not worried about the non-kosher fish there, because we might think that because the water flows rapidly." It's a pursuing water. Um, because it's flowing rapidly, we might think that the these small non-kosher fish, which do not have, not only do they not have fins and scales, according to the Gemara here, they do not have a spinal, they do not have a spine, right? So then they cannot, they can't really live in water that is pushing too much, that is rushing too much. You'd think that the current would just carry them all out, and then you don't have to worry about what's in the Bav River, right? It should only be kosher fish that are left. But the Gemara says, We do see that these non-kosher fish still, nonetheless, are in fact in these rivers with a strong currents. So maybe, So maybe Abai permitted this tzachanta, these small fish, because that water is salty. So maybe the non-kosher fish are not able to, to manage in the salt water because they don't have scales. Now, what the Gemara's presumption is, what the scales do, I can't tell you, I also don't know what the scales do, really. I mean, I do think that there's some cleaning mechanism in terms of keeping the fish clean, but I don't know enough. You're, do you know anything about 
the scales of fish? Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> you know, like, had I known... Although I will work... say this, my great-grandfather did own a fish store. That's cool. So maybe I have a relative. I can find out later. But... <laughs> okay, we're going to try to investigate this. You know, I, I said, like, there's only there's so much background re- research we can look into for, let's say, for sukkah. But I did not know until I prepared this daff that the non-kosher fish were showing up on this daff. Um, and this fits and scales issue. But again, we know, we the Gemara says, you might say that about the the lack of scales in salt water, but we know that these small non-kosher fish do exist, do swim in the in the salt water. So then the Gemara says, well, okay. So really the concern is that in the tina, in the mud, the mud is not um, uh, a comfortable home for these non-kosher fish. They're not going to reproduce there. It's too, I guess, too dense, too thick of an environment. So then Ravina says, well, okay, that's fine. Maybe that would have been acceptable for the Bav River back then. But today, what happened? The government, apparently, in Bavel, had built canals for the between the rivers so that the river Eitan and the river Gamda both now spill into the Bav this river, and therefore, right, you can't just eat your small fish without checking. You have to do a very thorough inspection to make sure that your tzachanta, your small fish, are not by accident. You haven't picked up a non-kosher fish. So all of this is really a sidebar because of Review Huda Barilai. I happen to find it particularly interesting because there was a recent article um, on current research about uh, in the articles in the Times of Israel, the research was done by researchers about uh, a preponderance of remnants, residue, skeletons, things like that, from non-kosher fish that were found in archaeological remains in Israel at a time in places and in in a location that you would have thought you would only find kosher fish. And this, so the the Times of Israel article is like bad Judeans, right? Like this idea that people were not really keeping the halacha of what fish were kosher, what fish were not kosher. And I don't, the, the article does not talk about this Gemara. And I'm curious, though, how much this Gemara, which is, you know, which is ostensibly allowing the eating of small fish with a caution to make sure that you don't eat the small fish that are the non-kosher fish. I'm wondering how much this statement is because people were doing it anyway. And maybe people weren't being so careful about the small, the non-kosher fish that were mixed in with the kosher fish. And of course, then we've got residues in the archaeological excavations. I'm not, you know, this is such speculation. I don't know enough. And I would like to talk to one of the archaeologists to find out, is there any potential connection here? Because it really may be that there isn't, that the, maybe the non-kosher fish that they were all eating was, were all large. And it's completely a separate conversation about how they weren't necessarily keeping halacha. But as I say, it caught my eye because of this proximity to this story uh, a couple of months ago. I just I just want to put it out there for everybody. Um, as soon as I read this thing about the fish, I knew this is what Anne was going to talk about. Because I sent you the article about them not being so frugal when they didn't keep the, when they, that they were eating non-kosher fish however long ago, which I found to be distressing. I, I'm not, totally surprised by that i mean actress <laughs> has become like a real industry whereas i think before it was a little more like it had a certain seichel to it does that make sense it does make sense also you know some of these archaeological discoveries come to make sense in some other way you know much 
much more profound ways longer after the initial. Uh, this is not a recent discovery, right? They've been working it over for a long time, but it's a kind of thing where I feel like sometimes we jump to these. I don't mean that the archaeologists are jumping to conclusions. Me reading the article, sometimes I might jump to a conclusion that really it needs still more investigation and more corroborating evidence or something to make such a sweeping claim as, oh my goodness, they weren't keeping kosher. Like it's it's a little bit hard to say that. It's good for a headline, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily exactly what was going on. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.